Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you begin at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and listen as I read verses 11 to 20. It's Moses speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the lord swore to your fathers to abraham to isaac and to jacob to give them let's pray together oh god as we consider these instructions to the people of israel in ancient times lord we ask that you would help us to understand in what manner these words are profitable and apply to us. As the apostle says much later in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is profitable. Lord, help us to understand how. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, what are we to make of the sorts of verses that I'm about to read in view of the coronavirus. Psalm 91, verses four to seven. The Lord will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. When I, that is the Lord, shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
or just a couple chapters earlier from what I just read to you. In Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 1, we read this. If you faithfully obey the, Lord, the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out, etc., etc. The chapter goes on like that for quite a while. And if we were to resume our reading at Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15, we would read this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you. Again, as I asked at the beginning, what are we to make of these sorts of verses in view of the coronavirus? I see Christians posting to their Facebook page, forwarding in WhatsApp messages. I hear them repeating on phone calls and videos, verses like these, applying them directly to this present situation with the coronavirus. Do they apply? Do they apply directly? To understand these verses properly and how they do speak to us in the 21st century, we need to consider a few things. We need to consider first the Old Covenant context of these verses. Second, their new covenant fulfillment. And third, their new covenant application. And my message tonight will be an exploration of these three considerations. And the hope is twofold as we explore these things together. First, that we will understand when these scriptures are being used wrongly so that we can avoid false hope and the inevitable disappointment that comes from misinterpreting scripture. And second, my hope in exploring these things tonight is that we would get well-founded encouragement from a proper application of these verses, which will sustain us in the midst of our present trial. So let's begin with the Old Covenant context of these sorts of verses. The concept of covenant, especially biblical covenants, can and has been described in many ways. But a simple and an accurate way to describe a covenant is simply that a covenant is defined and codified terms of relationship. I personally don't make much of the supposed 
covenant versus contract distinction. Thus, when a person takes on a mortgage from a bank, we would typically use the word contract to describe the relationship between that person and the bank. But I believe that it would be equally correct to use the word covenant. When people get married, it is a covenant. When a person like me, born a Canadian, but now also a Barbadian, when a person becomes a citizen of a new country and is sworn in as a citizen of that new country, he enters into covenant with that country. This is the way the Bible uses the term covenant. Just try and see if it fits. At its most basic level, a covenant is defined and codified terms of relationship. There are covenants in the Bible between kings and peasants, between even a man and his own eyes. As Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And there are covenants between men and other men, and there are covenants between God and men. And the common thread in all of these usages, these varied usages of the word covenant in the Bible, is that in every case there are defined and codified terms of relationship in every case. What is expected of each party? Who is responsible for what? What are the penalties for breaching the covenant? What are the benefits associated with keeping the covenant? Where you have these sorts of considerations defined and codified, you have a covenant. And there are several important covenants to understand in the Bible. And obviously, we don't have time to get into all of that tonight. But two of those covenants, which are important to understand in the Bible, are the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant is established between God and Jesus Christ. And by extension, all of the people whom Jesus Christ represents. More on this later. The Old Covenant is established between God and Abraham's biological offspring, traced through his son Isaac, and then through his grandson Jacob, and then compromising, pardon me, and then comprising all of Jacob's children. Now, if you know your Bible well, you'll remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so all of Jacob's children could also be called the children of Israel. And the children of Israel became the nation of Israel. When God entered into covenant with them at Mount Sinai and later repeated his covenantal terms in Moab again later. When God covenanted with the children of Israel at Sinai and Moab, he constituted the children of Israel a nation, and he gave them defined and codified terms of relationship, which would govern their life as a nation in relation to him. And so throughout the Old Testament, the framework in which people related to God was the framework of the Old Covenant. Its rules expectations, obligations, promises, and blessings, and curses conditioned upon the obedience of the covenant people. At this juncture, I want to remind you of the last half of the passage I read before I begin preaching. Deuteronomy 30, I'm just going to read verses 15 to 20 again. 
the Lord says to Israel, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This passage that I just read comes immediately on the heels of Deuteronomy 28, which was the passage I also read a few moments ago, in which blessings and curses connected with obedience and disobedience are set forth. To whom then did God promise to bless upon the condition of obedience and curse upon the condition of disobedience? His old covenant people. Deuteronomy 28 is their terms of relationship with God. Their covenant, not Canada's covenant with God, not Barbados's covenant with God, not America's covenant with God, not even the church's covenant with God. These verses are not part of our covenant. God was speaking to them when he said, if you obey, blessed will you be in the city, blessed will you be in the field, and so on. If you disobey, cursed will you be. God was speaking to them his old covenant people. This is manifestly true of Deuteronomy 28. All you have to do is keep reading and you realize that who he's speaking to in Genesis 28 is the people who were put under the old covenant in Deuteronomy 30. But this is also true of 2 Chronicles 7, which I read earlier, and Psalm 91. The context of all these verses and verses like them is the old covenant. God stipulated in the Old Covenant that the people included in that covenant would be blessed for their obedience and cursed for their disobedience. That was part of what life was like under the Old Covenant. That was part of the defined and codified terms of relationship between God and the Old Covenant people. And the reason that God did this was to teach the human race visibly and tangibly and viscerally in a way that we could appreciate in because it's so obvious just what our sins deserve and just what righteousness merits this is how it works a holy god cannot reward sin a holy god cannot punish righteousness it's the opposite 
Does a man want to be blessed by God? Then let him be righteous. Does a man want to sin? Then let him know that sin brings the curse. In the process of revealing himself and his ways to us, God introduced before the new covenant, the old covenant, which was very much like the conditions that he originally placed Adam in, in the garden. Obey and you shall live. Disobey and you shall die. Now before we come to consider the new covenant, let us consider for a while life under the old covenant. Would you really want to be blessed upon condition of your obedience and your nation's obedience to God? Would you really want to be under the threat of curse for personal or corporate disobedience to God? Consider those of you familiar with the storylines, the storyline of your Bibles. Consider the history of the nation of Israel. One would think after receiving these promises of blessing for obedience and these threats of curse for disobedience that the nation of Israel would have been on its best behavior from that point forward. But was that the case? No. Israel disobeyed time and time again. Even many of our so-called heroes of the faith were flagrantly disobedient to God himself. Even Moses, through whom God spoke these blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, and throughout the whole Torah, even Moses himself never got to go into the promised land. And the reason he was not allowed to go in was because of his disobedience. We might think also of David, the adulterer and the murderer, or Isaiah, the man of unclean lips. Whether the heroes or the villains of the Old Testament, so to speak, the words of Isaiah 53 condemn all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, sorry, I'm not quoting from Isaiah. I, I just saw all and looked up from my notes and my memory took over. <laughs> let, me, let me give you the quote I was going to give you from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. What I quoted from is Romans, which is equally true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or Psalm 14 and verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so the disparity of righteousness between the so-called heroes and villains of the Old Testament is merely relative. Perhaps one is moderately better and more righteous than another. But before a holy God, listen, listen carefully. Before a holy God, no one can claim the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Israel was eventually cut off from God as a nation, according to Paul in Romans 11. Divorced by God, as the prophet Jeremiah puts it. The fact that it took so long, so many generations, so many cycles of disobedience for that judgment to fall is all of grace. 
God's patience and not Israel's merit was the basis of God's kind dealings with the people of Israel, his old covenant people from Sinai to Bethlehem. If there's one thing that the Old Testament teaches very clearly, it is that we are all sinners undeserving of God's blessings. And no external motivators like the blessings and curses laid out in Deuteronomy 28 can change our inward compulsion to evil. So don't go quoting Deuteronomy 28 and Psalm 91 and 2 Chronicles 7 as if they apply directly to you. Don't do that for two reasons. One, you're not actually under the old covenant. So they factually don't apply to you. Secondly, you don't actually want them to apply to you. Otherwise, it means that you, a sinner, are under this system of blessings and curses conditioned upon your obedience or disobedience. And you won't fare any better than the Israelites did in ancient times. So what, if anything, do these verses say to us in the 21st century? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Old Covenant was given to teach the human race, visibly and tangibly, just what our sins deserve and what true righteousness merits. And that principle still applies. Disobedience still merits a curse. And righteousness, true righteousness, still merits a blessing according to the covenant that God initially made with Adam in the beginning. There is no hope in us, however, for the obedience that brings a blessing. We've seen that play out in the history of Israel. They couldn't do it. The Gentile nations around them couldn't do it. And you can't do it. And I can't do it. None of us can merit the blessings outlined in Deuteronomy 28. And so we must look elsewhere, outside ourselves, for the righteousness that merits a blessing. And that will lead us to Jesus Christ. So let's consider now the new covenant fulfillment of the sorts of verses we're dealing with tonight. In Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14, the first half of the passage, which I read before I began, Moses says to the people of Israel, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Paul's commentary on this in Romans 10 and verse 5 is that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based upon the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's what this section of Deuteronomy means in its original context. Look, God says, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. That's not hard to understand. That's what he means when it's near you. 
It's accessible to you. You can get it. You can understand it. It's not far off. It's not rocket science, in other words. It's not impossible for you not to do. Likewise, don't murder people. Honor your parents. Love the Lord who rescued you from Egypt, people of Israel. It's easy to understand, and it's doable, at least in an, in an outward sense, according to basic human faculties. So do it. The very next verse in Deuteronomy 30 is, See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. Moses goes on to say, therefore choose life. So Paul says, so as Paul says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based upon the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But then, after having explained earlier in Romans that the law has actually only condemned us, and the law has not given us the life that it theoretically holds out because of our failure to adhere to it, after having demonstrated that already in Romans, Paul goes on to say, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul has already explained in Romans that the righteousness that the law requires cannot come from ourselves because we are already guilty and corrupt, condemned by it. And so he's explained already and is now reiterating that it is by faith in Christ that we become righteous. Christ's righteousness becomes ours by faith. So we ought not to look for the law, not, not go up into the heavens and bring down the law that we might keep it. Reach down and bring up the law that we might keep it. Not the law is right in front of us, so let us do it so that we might be righteous. But Christ, let us take hold of Christ who will be our righteousness. Paul contrasts seeking righteousness through the law with seeking righteousness through Christ as he explains the new covenant fulfillment of this passage in Deuteronomy in his exposition in Romans chapter 10. When we read the demands of the law in Deuteronomy 28, we ought not therefore to think, I can do that. Instead, we ought to think, I need to lay hold of someone else who can, namely Christ Jesus. Jesus lived as a lawkeeper on behalf of lawbreakers. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is in Him, by faith in Him, that we can actually be counted as righteous and subsequently blessed for righteousness. So the blessings and curses of the Old Testament give us a principle which is still applicable in the 21st century. Disobedience still merits a curse. And true righteousness still merits a blessing according to the covenant that God made initially with Adam in the beginning. And the way 
the blessings and curses of the Old Testament play out in the life of Israel, teach us that we cannot get the righteousness that we need by our own law keeping. And so the blessings and curses of the Old Testament anticipate the coming of someone who can accomplish the necessary righteousness and merit a blessing for us. The New Testament makes explicit what the Old Testament had anticipated in general terms and in types and shadows. Christ Jesus came to be that righteous one who merits all of the blessings laid out in the Old Covenant. Christ Jesus came to fulfill the law for us, to be the rescuer for sinners who could not merit the blessings of the Old Covenant by our own law-keeping. By faith in Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness, and so we are considered as being righteous when we trust in Jesus. And therefore, we are considered as deserving to be blessed for the sake of Jesus' righteousness, which is ours by faith. So now, do we name and claim protection then from the coronavirus and all other temporal ills pleading our standing in Christ? Not exactly. Let's consider, finally, the new covenant application of the sorts of verses that we're studying today. To summarize what I'm about to say, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are given in the new covenant better blessings than mere health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the new covenant, we're not necessarily given temporal blessings here and now, health, wealth, prosperity, and the like, but we are necessarily given eternal blessings, spiritual blessings beginning here and now and lasting for eternity. Sometimes Christians are healthy, wealthy, and prosperous here and now, but in such cases, it's not because of Deuteronomy 28. In such cases, it's not because of Psalm 91 or 2 Chronicles 7 or whatever other Old Covenant verse. And when Christians are healthy, wealthy, and prosperous here and now, it's not because of any New Covenant verse either. God simply has not promised that his New Covenant people will be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in the here and now. He's promised much better blessings than that. Reconciliation to God, adoption as his sons and daughters, his abiding presence, sanctification unto Christ-likeness, and on and on we could go. Now, to be sure, God has promised that we're not going to be sick forever, nor in poverty forever, and that one day he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But we are waiting on that day. Here and now, we are not promised that we will be spared sickness and poverty. Our promised blessings here and now in the new covenant are greater than that. Again, as mentioned, reconciliation to God, adoption as his sons and daughters, his abiding presence, sanctification unto Christ-likeness, and so forth. Now, at this point, the objector might say, this is just a pie in the sky. 
fairy tale kind of religion that has no earthly benefit. You live and die like everyone else with only an intangible hope of heaven to distinguish you from the rest of mankind. And I wonder that a pie in the sky is only useless if it's an imaginary pie in the sky. If there really is a pie in the sky, then he who longs to ascend and to eat it is no fool. Likewise, a fairy tale hope is only useless if it's an imaginary hope and you aren't really going to live happily ever after. But if there really is happily ever after, then longing for happily ever after is a well-founded hope. Grant, objector, for the sake of argument that Christianity is true. Grant, for the sake of argument that Christians really are those whose sins are forgiven. That Christians really are those who are reconciled to God. That Christians really are those who are adopted as God's sons and daughters. That Christians really are those who have God's abiding presence with them. That Christians really are those who are being made like Christ. Grant, for the sake of argument, that Christians really are those whose every tear shall be wiped away. And that Christians really are those who shall live with God forevermore. Well then, if all that's true, then aren't Christians really the most blessed people around? Who cares what a man has in his bank account? Who cares what kind of worldly possessions another has? The white picket fence, the American dream kind of life loses its luster compared to that life which I just described. Because the American dream does not last forever. And therefore, since Christianity is true, we Christians really are the most blessed people around, even when we're sick, even when we're impoverished, even when we die. Christians are the most blessed people around. I heard Mark Chansky, the new coordinator-elect of the Reformed Baptist Network, say this week that one of the Puritans said that death is like a scowling doorman who lets us into a beautiful palace. You may be familiar with John Donne's poem, Death Be Not Proud. It begins like this, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death nor yet canst thou kill me. Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Death cannot kill us Christians. So what would you rather have? A promise that you will not get sick and die at a young age, but instead will die rather at a ripe old age peacefully in your bed? Or that no matter when you die or how you die, you won't really die. That even though you die, yet shall you live. This is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. There were more tangible, visible blessings associated with obedience in the old covenant. I grant it. Good crops, fertile wombs, 
physical health, other forms of prosperity. But all of these are inferior to the blessings of the new covenant. Reconciliation to God, adoption as his sons and daughters, his abiding presence, sanctification unto Christ-likeness in the here and now, and the wiping away of every tear and life with God forevermore hereafter. So saying that Deuteronomy 28, Psalm 91, and 2 Chronicles 7 and the like don't apply directly to us as Christians in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, ought not to be a disappointment, actually, when rightly understood. When I was 21, I bought my very own car, a 1986 Mercury Lynx station wagon. And at the time I bought it, it wasn't the 80s. It wasn't the 90s even. It was 2007. So when I bought that 1986 Mercury Lynx, it was the same age as me. We were both 21. It ran good for a couple of years, but it was nothing to write home about. It was an old car on its last legs. Now, this didn't really happen, but imagine if sometime in 2007, a friend of mine came in the night while I was sleeping and out of his love for me had my 1986 Mercury Lynx station wagon towed away to the wrecker and left in its place in my driveway outside my house a brand new pickup truck registered in my name. Complaining that we don't have the blessings of the old covenant anymore would be like complaining about having your 21-year-old Mercury Lynx replaced with a brand new pickup truck. But this is better, your friend would say. And it would be ridiculous if you replied, yes, in some ways, but this new pickup truck doesn't play cassette tapes. The blessings of the new covenant are superior to old covenant blessings as superior as a brand new pickup truck is to a 20-something-year-old station wagon, even if those new covenant blessings are less tangible and visible than the old covenant blessings. And so when Christians read Deuteronomy 28 or Psalm 91 or 2 Chronicles 7 or verses like that, we ought not to reflect on how we can obey better to get more health, wealth, and prosperity. Nor ought we to mourn that these don't apply directly to us anymore. But rather, we ought to reflect on how Christ has obeyed and merited for us better blessings than the things promised in those passages. We shouldn't see the relevance of these passages to our lives as being that they hold out the hope of a smooth life now if we will just be better Christians. Rather, we should see the relevance of these passages to our lives as being that they hold out a visible, tangible object lesson of the blessedness that righteousness merits. And that should lead us to consider our blessedness in Christ because of his righteousness. Our spiritual health here and now our protection from all spiritual enemies and dangers here and now, 
and it ought to make us appreciative that one day, even, yes, even physical sickness one day and poverty will be removed from us on that day when God makes all things new and we will live with God forever. All of this is wrapped up in the blessedness of the new covenant, which Christ has earned and merited by his righteousness. And that righteousness is ours by faith. So again, as I asked at the beginning, what are we to make of the sorts of verses like Deuteronomy 28, 2 Chronicles 7, Psalm 91, in view of the coronavirus. I see and hear Christians posting to their Facebook page, repeating on phone calls and videos, forwarding in WhatsApp messages, verses like these, applying them directly to this situation with the coronavirus. Do they apply? Do they apply directly? The answer is yes, they apply. But no, they do not apply directly. You are not under the old covenant. Neither am I. And you don't want to be. If you and I were in a system of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, we'd fare as the Israelites did. God would curse and divorce us. But Christ has merited blessings for us. And Christ has merited better blessings. In the here and now, we are reconciled to God, adopted as sons and daughters. We have God's abiding presence with us. We are being made like Christ. We are being protected from spiritual dangers and enemies. We have spiritual prosperity. All of this in the here and now. Superior blessings to the old covenant, conditioned upon Christ's righteousness. And one day, yes, every tear, every tear will be wiped away. And we shall live with God forevermore in a new heavens and new earth without sin, sickness, or poverty. So don't settle for the kind of soft prosperity gospel that many are advocating for in these times. God offers you something better than protection from the coronavirus conditioned upon your obedience. God offers you eternal superior spiritual blessedness in Christ, beginning now and lasting forever, conditioned upon the obedience of Christ. And added to those things will be the eventual alleviation of sickness and poverty in the age to come. So, Christian, let the coronavirus do what it may to us. Let whatever other dangers do what they may to us. As those who believe in Christ, even though we die, yet shall we live. Our hope is better than simply not getting sick. Our hope is that even sickness and death cannot take away the blessedness that is ours in Christ Jesus and in the new covenant.